I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. A while back, I posted the following quote statement on my Facebook page. Went out around the world. A lot of people come to my Facebook page. And this is what I posted. If my love for Jesus never leads me to take a risk, how much do I really love him? If my faith never causes me to do things that make no sense to others, including my Christian friends, perhaps I'm playing it too safe. If everything I say and everything I do is perfectly comprehensible to the world, then I need to do some soul searching. That quote got a number of encouraging responses. Then there was this comment from a man in Nigeria. Quote, my sincere question is, why does it take us so long after being a Christian to get to this stage when the disciples got there in three and a half years? Am I missing something here? His question is both honest and very common. I would say to my friend from Nigeria, you are not missing anything. We all wonder from time to time, why is it taking me so long to get better. Here are a few examples. I thought by now I wouldn't struggle so much with anger. Why is it taking me so long to get better? I'm still tempted by pornography. Why is it taking me so long to get better? I go to church every Sunday, but I still have doubts. Why is it taking me so long to get better? I thought I'd be a better person by now, but I've got so many bad habits. Why is it taking me so long to get better. I'm a bitter person, even though I cover it up most of the time. Why is it taking me so long to get better? Many of us wish we had the answer to that most basic question. I'm a Christian. I walk with the Lord. I try to do my part. Why is it taking me so long to get better? We might assume that upon conversion, we would rapidly sprout wings and fly to heaven. But it doesn't happen that way. God has ordained that even though we are being made like Jesus, it only happens a little bit at a time. And sometimes that little bit seems very little indeed. There is victory to be had. We sing victory in Jesus, and there is victory to be had but it will not come easily or quickly. We are in a war with spiritual foes who will not quickly or easily yield their ground. Now, in our series on James, we have come tonight to a passage that helps us understand how God builds our faith through the trials of life. As opposed to a dead faith that produces nothing, Abraham's dynamic faith was made complete 
when he offered his beloved son Isaac on the altar. Would you like to see your faith grow? Then let's study together. James 2, verses 21 through 24, to to learn from Abraham how our trials can make our faith complete. We will see faith tested, faith perfected, faith affirmed, and faith clarified. First, faith tested. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. When, when James called him Abraham our father, and remembering he was writing to Jewish Christians, poor, struggling, and scattered across the Roman Empire, by saying Abraham our father, that's a masterstroke because the Jews traced their spiritual lineage back to him. As far as the Jews were concerned, Abraham was the ideal man of faith. After years of walking with God, he is put to the supreme test of his life. It was such a dramatic moment that James says Abraham was, quote, justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Now, you know the story. You've all read the story. Rather than retell all the details, I want to make some observations on the larger context of the story of Abraham and Isaac. First, the test came after many years of walking with God. In some ways, Abraham's whole life was one test after another. It started when God called him to leave Ur the Chaldees. Hebrews 11.8 points out that he went out, quote, not knowing where he was going. That's a huge test. Abraham, uh, Genesis 15.6 points out the moment when Abraham believed God and his faith was counted by God as righteousness. If we ask, if we ask from our point of view, when was Abraham saved in the New Testament sense? Well, it would have to be Genesis 15.6. By the way, James isn't the only one to point this out. That's also the exact point Paul makes when he quotes Genesis 15, 6, in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. That took place approximately 30 years before he offered Isaac on the altar. So I'm just going to say, just in the beginning here, Abraham's whole life was a series of tests put to him by God, of which the supreme and final one was the offering of his son Isaac on the altar. Second, the test came after Abraham had experienced both victories and defeats. We, fe- we see his faith shining when he left her the Chaldees, Genesis 12. Yet, when he took Sarah to Egypt, he lied about her. That's also Genesis 12. He won a great victory, was blessed by Melchizedek. That's Genesis 14. He received a great promise from God, Genesis 15. Then he got into trouble by having a child with Hagar. That's Genesis 16. He was circumcised in Genesis 17. Then he lied about Sarah again in Genesis 20. What I'm saying is, Abraham clearly was a man of faith, yet he was also a man of human weakness. So this great test came after many years of some amazing victories and some very sad, shameful defeats. Third, 
The test came in a most unexpected way. When God called him to go to Mount Moriah, Abraham had no idea what God intended. He had no reason to imagine that God would want him to sacrifice his own son. Nothing in his experience could have prepared him for that moment. Fourth, this test was never repeated anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only time God ever asked anyone to sacrifice his son. As such, the story in Genesis 22 stands alone in the scriptural record. So, how should we view it in light of Abraham's life? It certainly stands as the supreme and the most extreme example of his faith. God meant to put Abraham on the spot by asking him to yield to the Lord, the son who was himself the very embodiment of God's promises. Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us that Abraham believed that even if he put his own son to death, God would raise him up from the dead. And this is what that verse says. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, this is Hebrews now, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, in that verse, Hebrews eleven nineteen, we learn something that's only hinted at in Genesis 22. Twice in that chapter, Abraham intimates that he expects that somehow, some way, God was going to work things out so Isaac would live. When he saw Moriah in the distance, he gave this instruction to his servants. Quote, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go there, meaning to Moriah. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Did you get that? We will come back to you. Not I will come back, but we will come back. Abraham believed that somehow God was going to work it out so that he and his son would return together. Then, as the two of them walked along, with Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice, the son asked the father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham's reply has become a synonym for the man of faith, speaking faith into what was a humanly impossible, hopeless situation. Genesis 22, 8. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, you take Genesis, you take Hebrews, you get the answer. Why could Abraham talk like that? He believed God could raise the dead. He didn't know how. He had never seen it happen. He reasoned from what he knew about God to what he knew about the situation. And the only thing he could come up with was this. I'm going to put my own son to death, and then God is going to raise him from the dead. Now, that would be amazing at any point in history, but especially since no one in history had ever been raised from the dead, and this happened 2,000 years before Christ. Okay? Faith tested. Second now. Faith perfected. Look at verse 22. Here, is, here now is James' commentary on all of that. You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was perfected. So we got to think about this for a minute. What was it 
that was at stake at Mount Moriah. It wasn't just the life of Abraham's beloved son. When Abraham raised the knife to kill his own son, he was, in effect, killing the promise of God. You see, if Isaac died, the promise of a great nation would die with him. You might call this the reverse of the temptation Abraham faced when he slept with Hagar. That was an attempt to fulfill God's promise through purely fleshly means. In that case, Abraham refused to wait for God's solution. In this case, in this case, Abraham doesn't try to reason it out how God will fulfill his promise if Isaac is dead. He determined to obey God without asking how it would all work out. So now we can stand back and see the story in clear perspective. Did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son Isaac? Yes. Was it a legitimate request? Yes. Did Abraham know in advance how the story would end? No. Specifically, did he know about the ram in the thicket? No. Well then, what was it that Abraham knew? He knew what God had asked him to do, and he knew that God had promised to give him a son through whom he would bless the world. What he did not know was how God was going to reconcile his promise to bless the world through Isaac with the command to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. It is right at this point that we see Abraham's faith at its highest and best point. Even though that command to sacrifice his son made no sense from a human point of view, Abraham intended to obey it anyway. Let me say it more clearly. He meant to obey God's command even though it meant killing God's promise. You got that? He determined to obey the command even though ostensibly at least it meant killing God's promise. Let me just apply this this way. When God makes a promise, it is folly and disbelief to wonder how he will keep his word Faith does not reckon with the word how. Faith believes and leaves the how in the hands of Almighty God. If we spend too much time trying to figure out how God will take care of us, we are likely to talk ourselves into a corner. Third, faith affirmed. Look at verse 23. So, James says, the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to his account for righteousness and he was called God's friend. That's verse 23. Now, little Bible chronology will help us here. When James mentions the Scripture, it says, see, the Scripture was fulfilled. That's Genesis 15, 6, okay? In that chapter, Genesis 15, God puts Abraham to sleep while the Lord walks alone between the carcasses of the slain beast. You remember that? The, the, the beasts were offered, then, then the carcasses were divided, made a, made a walkway through it, and the Lord walked alone, alone between the carcasses of the slain beast. You see, in ancient times, two people would make a covenant official by walking together through the pieces of a slain animal. But question, why does God walk alone? Because the fulfillment of the promise 
ultimately depends on God, not Abraham. The sequence looks like this. Abraham believed God. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham falls asleep and God walks alone through the pieces of the slain animals. Nothing could be clearer. Abraham was saved or reckoned righteous on the simple and single condition of believing what God had said. The offering, now look, between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, there's probably about 30 years that are going to pass there. Many years later, we can say it this way. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15. Abraham offered God, Genesis 22. And there's about 30 years in between. It's perfectly fair, perfectly fair to say that Abraham was justified by faith. That happens to be Paul's point in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Perfectly fine because Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15. It's also true Abraham was justified by works because the offering of Isaac 30 years later was the pinnacle and proof of the reality of his faith. Fourth thing here then, verse 24, faith clarified. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Though I don't have time to get into it, this is a verse that troubled the great Martin Luther enormously. This is a verse that caused him to wonder about the book of James, and that's a whole interesting thing to talk about. But he just says what it says. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Look, listen, faith has more than one meaning in the New Testament. It can refer to a body of doctrine, the faith once delivered to the saints, or it can refer to living trust in God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. When we talk about faith today, we sometimes mean something like, quote, a positive feeling that things will work out, such as, I've got faith the Cubs will win the World Series this year. That sentiment was nothing more than a vain hope for 108 years until the great miracle at Wrigley Field last October. Whatever you call that sort of faith, faith in the Cubs, that's not the same thing as saving faith. Understand that. True saving faith springs from a transforming trust in the eternal promises of a God who cannot lie. That's so good, I'm going to repeat that. True saving faith springs from a transforming trust in the eternal promises of a God who cannot lie. Said another way, the faith that saves us starts with God, not with us. It's a conscious choice to reach out and trust the promises of God that come to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That sort of faith is alive because it rests on the living words of the living God of the universe. It's not as if, it's not as if James is saying, you should let your faith change you. He's going further than that. He means to say, true faith will change you. It will, it will be seen in your life eventually. And if it's not seen, it's because it's not really there. Now, for 2,000 years, Christians have looked at this story the story of Abraham offering Isaac, and they have seen in it a picture of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 22 
we see what a man would do for the love of God. But at Calvary, we see what God would do for the love of man. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice Isaac. God actually sacrificed his only son. More than that, Jesus endured physical death and spiritual death to obtain redemption for sinners. When God's hand was raised at Calvary, there was no one to cry out, Stop! Do not harm the child. There was no ram in the thicket to offer in his place. God's hand fell in judgment on his own son when Jesus died for you and me. Abraham offered his son. The father offered his son. Isaac carried the wood. Jesus carried the cross. Isaac was laid on the altar. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Abraham was willing to put his son to death. The father willed his son should die. The ram was offered in the place of Isaac. Christ was offered in the place of sinners. Abraham received his son back figuratively, but Jesus literally rose from the dead. Now, what are we supposed to take away from the story of Abraham and Isaac? As I studied Genesis 22, I was struck by something that God said to Abraham after the great trial was over. The ram sacrificed, Isaac spared, the promise reaffirmed. It comes as part of the happy ending to a very great trial. God commends Abraham by saying in Genesis 22, verse 12, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God says, I ask you for your most precious possession, and you gave it to me. The real lesson for all of us tonight comes down to this. God intends to bring our faith to completion. As with Abraham, so with us. The only way that happens is for us to go through a time of trial. You know, you can think of it this way. Suppose you like to play chess. Suppose you buy one of those computer games that teaches you how to play chess. You work at it. You study it. You play simulated games day and night. Eventually, you get so good you never lose. You're undefeated in your own basement playing against the computer program. And that is indeed a kind of mastery. But it's something else entirely to sit down at a table and play face-to-face against another person. That's when you find out how good you really are. In a sense, walking with God means that eventually... Our faith must become more than theoretical. At some point, we got to get out of the basement and into real life. Sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. Look at Abraham. Look at him. Even though he's called the father of faith in the Bible, he lied about Sarah twice and got involved with Hagar at Sarah's instigation, a situation that came about because his faith was weak and he thought, it, he, thought he needed to help God out. My point is, God tests, God tested Abraham over and over again. He does the same thing with us. That's the only way our faith can grow, can grow stronger. A beloved hymn we often sing contains these lines. 
Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Abraham's ultimate test was not about money. He touched something deeper. Would he withhold his own son from the Lord? I'm not really sure how well I would have done in that moment. I'm not sure I would have been as strong as Abraham. But that's okay. I don't have to be like Abraham. His tests and mine are different. But God constantly brings us back to the place in life where we are asked, will you yield what you hold dear to me? Just as Abraham didn't know what God was about to ask, we have no idea what tomorrow may bring. But we do know this. God puts us in hard places so our faith will grow under pressure. And in that sense, to bring it all home now, we are justified by faith the moment we believe in Christ. And we are justified by works as our faith is put to the test over and over and over again. We shouldn't be surprised. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's all part of God's plan. The dangers, the toils, the, st- the snares, the tests, the temptations, the hardships, the yielding up to God. It's all part of God's plan to bring our faith to completion. Over the years, I've discovered that the happiest people are those who say, I've decided to let go. I've decided to open my hands and say, Lord, all that I have you gave me. You can have it anytime you want it. So many of us go through life with a clenched fist, trying to control the uncontrollable, trying to mastermind all the circumstances, trying to make our plans work. We hold so tightly to the things we value, our career, our reputation, our happiness, our health, our children, our grandchildren, our education, our wealth, our possession, our mates. We even hold tightly to life itself. But oh, my friends, Oh, my friends, when will we learn that the things we hold so tightly never belong to us anyway? It's all on loan from God. He can ask for it back anytime he wants. And you know what? The man said, you can fight against God as he pulls your fingers away from the... the things of life. Get down to the thumb. You try to fight back. Guess what? God's going to win that every time. As the man said, your arms are too short to box with God. You will never, you will never win that battle. You have your wife, you have your husband for a season. You have your health for a season. Your kids for a season your grandchildren for a season, your wealth, your possessions, your career, all that. And you know what? You have your life. 
And by the way, what is your life? What is it? A vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. Happy are they who hold lightly what they value greatly because it all belongs to God anyway. What are you struggling with tonight? What are you holding on to so tightly that it almost makes your hands hurt? What is it that you are afraid to give up to God? Whatever it is, you'll be so much happier when you finally say, okay, Lord, the battle's over. Your will be done. And you open up your clenched fist. But you'll never know till you let go. The hymn I mentioned earlier ends with these lines. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be always, ever, all for thee. May that be our prayer today and every day. Let's pray together. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring our faith to completion. Help us not to doubt or to hold back, but to yield all that we have to you. Help us tonight to pour our love at your feet that we might live ever, only, all for thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.